Bibi Fahodier, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. Baby Fodiers, this is African Liberation Media. Here with brothers Amos and Macaru. Today's date is February 15, 62, 61. Equity, justice, democracy, are just platitudes. Nothing else we learned over the past couple of days is that politics is a game of fear. Brother Amos Wilson used to talk about the necessity of power. And that change politically, socially does not take place as a result of any type of overtures in the area of moral suasions, but it's based on the prerequisite of power, fear, the ability to exercise one's will in spite of opposition. Of course, he is many other scholars, scholar warriors lamented the lack of power that existed in black life in the black community the world over. You know, same politics that adhere in the African continent, throughout the African continent, adhere here throughout the diaspora as well as here in the United States. This is the African Liberation Media. You know, once again, we want to deal with concepts that you will not hear inside the dominant realm of conversation. Gentlemen, take it where you, wherever you want to take it. I'll be before Hodier, our African family. Once again, great opportunity to discuss issues from the perspective of African liberation and empowerment. I had a chance to uh, see the movie titled uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, which is primarily focused on a race trader, William O'Neill, and uh, his... um, co-conspiracy with our historical enemies to uh, take out one of the most dynamic and promising young African people of the uh, 20th century, uh, Fred Hampton. And I'm not going to give anything away uh, specifically as related to the movie for those who have not seen it. But I did write a response to this article that appeared in the L.A. Times titled Judas and the Black Messiah Delivers Justice for Fred Hampton. Thank those he left behind. And the interview in the uh, article uh, was primarily based on interviews with Shaka King, who was the director of the movie, along with Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. and his mother, Fred Hampton's lady, his his wife, Sister Akua, 
and Jerry, then known as Deborah Johnson. And I, I, I'll just read a couple of things that I that I said about it. I would not say that this movie delivers justice, but if Sister and Jerry and Chairman Fred Jr. are satisfied with the production, what can the rest of us say? We hope that a movie about our esteemed ancestor Fred Hampton would be about him, his life, his historical and political development from the NAACP uh, to his attendance in classes uh, that was being conducted by our esteemed ancestor and the brilliant scholar, Dr. Bobby Wright, to uh, joining the Black Panther Party. Certainly the roles of the, of the race traitor and our enemies in his, in his assassination has to be detailed, but the controllers, that is the controllers of the movie, believed that the only way you can get a movie about Fred Hampton or the Black Panther Party through the studio pipeline was to make the race trader William O'Neill a central character. And this is a quote uh, from Shaka King. That's why rather than making a straightforward Hampton biopic, it was decided that the story would be told from O'Neill's perspective. Chairman, Fred, Chairman Fred's politics are incredibly radical and anti-capitalist in a studio system whose lifeblood is capitalism. We had to do damage control because there's so much misinformation going around, and it's been recently revealed that over 73% of the information provided about the Black Panther Party was authored by the FBI. So there were many days of saying, we have actual individuals who were there and who are still here who are open not only to talk about it, but to put it in its correct political context, said Chairman Fred Jr. He's the uh, chairman of the Black Panther Party Cubs organization that uh, he founded to carry on uh, some of the work of the Black Panther Party. Although Chairman Fred Jr. acknowledges the creative battles of the film, an ongoing struggle, he says it earned his endorsement. There's another saying, a revolutionary is ne never satisfied, he said, with a life, so with a laugh. So, you know, this appears to be a um, situation where, you know, they thought that they would get uh, as much out of it as, as they can. And, uh, you know, I think it would be worthwhile for people to read this, this interview, uh, you know, that was uh, conducted by the L.A. Times. Uh, the story came out uh, uh, during a, a period of time where we were recognizing an event uh, that took place that, that most of our people uh, don't really know anything about. And uh, that was uh, an event involving the uh, Black Panther Party chapter in High Point, North Carolina. Uh, what High Point is, what, about... 70, 75 miles um, north of, uh, of Charlotte. And there was, uh, in 1971, uh, a shootout. Uh, actually, it was an assault by uh, uh, 30 police officers uh, from the High Point Police Department on the uh, Black Panther Party office, which at the time was being manned by four teenagers, the oldest being 19, three brothers and a sister. And uh, these four black teenagers uh, fought the police, uh, shooting one, uh, and one of them was injured for several hours, uh, you know, before, uh, you know, they uh, capitulated. And what it, what it reminded me of, 
just the, the just the tender ages of these young people, black teenagers, fighting our oppressors, not gang banging in the streets, shooting up our own communities, killing our own people, but actually focused on fighting our enemies. And uh, it, it reminded me of COINTELPRO, goal number five. Of course, our listeners know that uh, COINTELPRO is the FBI's counterintelligence program originally designed uh, supposedly to fight the Communist Party uh, USA from influence, but which turned uh, under uh, the leadership of the most destructive institutionalized white supremacists of the 20th century, J. Edgar Hoover, J. Edgar by day, Mary by night, Hoover. And uh, it focused on neutralizing, actually destroying, particularly the Black Panther Party, but uh, every aspect of the Black Liberation Movement, which they considered to be a severe, supreme threat, probably the, the most, uh, I'd say the most supreme threat to the power structure of this country, certainly since the Garvey Movement, in many ways perhaps even more so in terms of um, the uh, the orientation of our people who were actually willing to fight back. Goal number five says a final goal should be to prevent the long-range long growth of black militant organizations, especially among youth. Specific tactics to prevent these groups from converting young people must be developed, especially among youth. Specifically meaning black youth like the uh, four high-point teenage members of the Black Panther Party. These four black teenagers fighting their oppressors, not gang-banging in the community, uh, were uh, younger than 21-year-old Fred Hampton when he was killed. And, you know, this is a major reason why the United States government declared war on the black liberation movement. They were literally afraid of these black youth uh, being politicized, radicalized, and having no fear, no fear. As a matter of fact, uh, when, when the police officers uh, in High Point tried to coax the uh, brothers into coming out and giving up. They, they initially said, no, we're not doing that because we know what you all did to Fred Hampton. They knew the history. You know, you gunned him down, you know, in, in, in cold blood in his sleep, right, after being drugged. So, uh, you know, this, this, this to me just really shows uh, when we look at the situation in our community today and compare it to then, it shows how far we have to go to recapture uh, what was really a revolutionary spirit. I mean, when you look at all these, uh, you know, brothers and sisters like Geronimo G. Jaga, formerly known as Geronimo Pratt, uh, Al Prentice, Bunchy Carter, John Huggins, uh, Asada Shakur, uh, Daruba Ben Wahad. I mean, it, 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 the, the conscious, these were young people all in their teens and 20s uh, who were fighting this system tooth and nail. And, you know, we got a long way to go to recapture, uh, you know, that uh, that consciousness, that consciousness. And, of course, part of recapturing the consciousness is to not, to not make, you know, many of the mistakes that were made. But but we understand that, you know, that, that it, we're in a process of development. And in any process of development, I mean, you know, there, there, there are going to be, you know, positives and negatives as you fight your way through 
you, any revolutionary movement, I don't care whether you look at the Cuban Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, the Vietnamese Revolution, you will see in the early years, you know, things. You know, Fidel Castro, uh, you know, became a lawyer, ran for office, thought he could, you know, change the system, you know, politically. Uh, and, and he had to have time to develop. What would have happened to the Cuban Revolution, for example, you know, even after they developed, if uh, after the grandma landed, you know, in the Sierra Maestri, uh, the mountain areas, what had happened if uh, if Che Guevara, uh, Fidel, and Raul Castro had, had been killed? And, uh, you know, this is basically what happened to our young leaders. You know, they were actually taken out. Those who were not killed were in prison, some of whom are still in prison, many, many of whom are still in prison, Sundiata, Coley, um, Chip Fitzgerald, uh, Ed Poindexter, and others. So, you know, this is... Uh, you know, everything that's produced, whether it may not necessarily meet all of our expectations, there are things to be learned from it. But you have to have voices like ours to uh, sift through all of the confusion and, you know, point people towards, you know, those things that are positive and that can be learned from those things. So just wanted to uh, say that after uh, having the opportunity to watch, uh, you know, the movie. Uh, one day over the weekend yeah i watched it too over the weekend and i thought it was a pretty good pretty good film it really showed the sacrifice that these young men and women were making at such at such a young age being willing to sacrifice and give up so much that people today are not willing to do and the dedication that they had to not only their action but really understanding the struggle and understanding the war and being able to articulate it profoundly mm -hmm. uh to the nth degree i feel as though that to me it, it really shows that you don't have to be old to be educated a lot of times mm -hmm. we waste so much time just going through school and learning the highlights of the American education, many of us can't go into the details of what we learned in school, but just listening to Fred Hampton talk and, you know, you listen to his interviews, you listen to how he articulated himself and how he understood and was able to really explain the issues. And I think that that, that to me was, was very profound. Um, and he didn't try to, you know, to change the pitch and the sound in his voice to try to sound white like, you know, newscasters do on, on, the, on, on the 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock news. But he was able to speak uh, as a black man and he was able to ex explain what he needed to get across in regards to his point. And one of the things that he said, uh, a scene that they show in the movie um that really stood out to me was they were at a meeting with a group of white nationalists and he said, what if the slave and the overseer joined together to cut the slave master's throat? Mm. When the white boy said that my ancestors didn't oppress your ancestors because my ancestors were sharecroppers and they were poor. And if you can read between the lines on that, then you'll understand what Henry Ford was referring to when he said the world's foremost problem. The uh, people know if you go get that book, 
the international Jew, you'll begin to understand the architect behind the racism and white supremacy system. They all are problems for us, the nationalist and the small hat, but it takes a certain mind to be able to architect and finance that system and keep it going. And it's not a coincidence that you have a Garvey meeting with a white nationalist group or Elijah Muhammad or Malcolm meeting with a white nationalist group or even a Fred Hampton meeting with a white nationalist group because maybe they all realize that there was something outside of both of the, both of those groups themselves and the white nationalist groups that were pushing them in the direction of confrontation for their own benefit. So for the director to be able to show that it might have went over a lot of people's heads, but I think it was I think it was definitely saying that in regards to um, the particular focus when you view it from that perspective. But I think that overall, you know, the movie where I think it should have continued on is it, it should have showed the aftermath of William O'Neill and how he committed suicide and how he later, you know, realized the mistake that he made by doing what he did. And I know they showed him in the sit-down interview and things like that, but they should have showed him running on the highway and getting hit by a car. Hmm. And showing, because I feel like that speaks volumes to the other Negroes who may view the movie, who may be the next William O'Neill. Maybe that will reach them so that they'll realize that, you know, there's no benefit from selling your race and selling your people out. Well, you know, they they, they did one thing that I thought was very detrimental in dealing with O'Neill. Uh, they, they showed him getting paid. They never showed the dollar amounts or whatever. And we know from the uh, white radicals that broke into the uh, Pennsylvania FBI office and uncovered uh, COINTELPRO in the details because, you know, they had they, they, they stole the files actually from an FBI office. Um, FBI were, some, were watching uh, Muhammad Ali fight Joe Frazier in uh, 1971. And was that first fight in 71, Swilly? I think it was, wasn't it? Okay, he's he's on mute again. Um, so in anyway, um, I'm sorry, brother. About March eighth, nineteen seventy one. I don't know okay. if I came across clearly. Yeah, yeah, you you yeah you on mute. And um, one of the things that was revealed in those files that O'Neill was paid a three hundred dollar uh, bonus, and they also said that they had bought him a a, a service uh, station. And there was a caption that said that O'Neill was given the equivalent of 200, uh, equivalent of what would be $200,000 in today's dollars. Now, man, there, there, there are people that are sell out for a whole lot less than that. Mm -hmm. And I just thought putting that in there, uh, 
you know, if they had said he was given a $300 bonus, then then maybe uh, saying, okay, well, you know, the guy was eventually driven to commit suicide or whatever. Putting that $200,000 out there, I thought was, I, I thought that was a critical yeah. error on Enticing. the part. Oh, man, yeah, I mean, because $200,000, man, I mean, look, man, people yeah, are robbing. for the average weak-minded brother, yeah. Shoot, man, look, people are robbing people for $25, $10. I mean, you know, come on, yeah. man. Uh, you know, you know, robbing, you know, we just had a 73-year-old sister down in Goldsboro, broke in her house, shot the sister in the in her leg. And um, if her 12-year-old grandson hadn't grabbed a, a weapon to defend her, they may have killed her. And so... I, I just thought that was something that was. I thought it was a critical error on their part. Well, I mean, it's just uh, like it's, it's just like, uh, and you gotta, you know, part of it. Sometimes, you know, I I I forget a lot of the biblical stories, but they named the movie Judas mm -hmm. and the Black Messiah. Right. So Judas, correct me if I'm wrong, but he committed suicide after he turned turned on. Um, Jesus, according to the biblical story, right? Yeah, he he turned on uh, Mark D of the Christ. Uh, I give Judas more credit than I give many Negroes because he thought, according to some theologians, that if the Mark D were apprehended by, uh, call it the Praetorian God, the Roman centurions of you know, whatever classification you want to give them, that he had the power to rain down fire and brimstone and destroy the suppressor. See? So according to most theologians, he did not understand the plan. He did have an agenda in his mind, ultimately uh, being to liberate uh, those people who were oppressed from Roman oppression. Yeah, but he didn't turn. Uh, he didn't other, turn down that silver, though. He still took those thirty pieces of silver. Yeah, absolutely. At least he had the decency to kill himself. You know, a <laughs> lot of Negroes. I'm quoting Stokely still. Well, I mean, I say, I, I say that because yeah, absolutely, he he threw away he threw away the silver once he realized that his plan was for it had, had uh, gone awry. Yeah, well, I, I say that because, um, like I said, I, I feel like if they would have showed O'Neill killing himself then it really would show people the true uh ending of a race trader a race trader is disgraced the race trader gets no honor and a race trader is forever looked upon as uh a lower part of the black race amongst people who hold the black race in a high regard and William O'Neill committed suicide on MLK day was his 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 his, his uh admission come of guilt. Up. yeah it was his admission of guilt he realized mm -hmm. the the mistake that he made and how he took a powerful young brother like fred hampton out of his development or, or helped the the european take him out of his development so they the movie should have really focused if you're going to make the depiction about william o'neill then in the movie y'all focusing on on that that was a disservice uh, to, to me because it, it ended the movie like 
he took his money he went on to live out the rest of his life after doing what he did and he didn't that's not what happened yeah but we're going back to this notorious white supremacist one thing that he mentions in the FBI file is that the black man aka the Negro was unable to resist Cadillacs and money uh, yeah, I said a few things. You know, we wanted to stop the rise of the black Messiah who could unify and electrify the masses, um, discredit black leadership in the eyes of the respectable Negro community as well as in the eyes of white liberals. And then another point was the Negro youth has to be convinced that if they succumb to nationalist ideologies that they will be killed. You know, the question that I uh, raise over and over again, I mean, rhetorically, is that, uh, you know, the Panthers had guns, but the cops had bigger guns. What was the real threat? You know, and and on a whatever level you want to refer to it as, you know, it's an alternative to this economic system, which is the uh, spoken and unspoken mandate of the U.S. State Department is to destroy any alternatives to keep this contagion is the word that they uh, that that continues to appear from spreading, you know, be it in Bolivia, be it in Cuba, be it in Vietnam, be it in the um, colonial enclaves, the black communities here in the United States. Yeah, nothing has changed in that uh, respect. Uh, but in the question you brothers raised, you know, it's you know perhaps that consciousness can be rediscovered if those organizations were developed to us again. Well, I think to your point that the threat was the black man himself. You know, we were a threat to the European when we didn't have any guns and they had guns. We were, you know, uh, uh, one black man is a threat to a mob of European, uh, White supremacists, rednecks, and peckerwoods. They still fear that that one black man is going to be able to come down off of that rope and somehow uh, save himself from being hung and kill all of them. So they were threatened that Fred Hampton himself, as Makru stated, was going to be able to ignite the youth, which he was in the process of doing, and the movie did depict that and uniting the gangs and the youth in Chicago, this is what they feared the most because they know that younger people um, are willing, more willing than older people. And when I say older, I'm not just saying people in their 60s, 70s, but even people in their 30s. People in their teens and 20s are more likely to go out and put their lives on the line than people who are more established in, in a society because you become more comfortable, you know, the older that you, the older that you get. Mm-hmm. So that was, yep. the, that was the fear. That was a threat. And, and, and in the climate where you have had successful revolutions in Cuba and you've had other countries who've been able to successfully utilize communism, they felt that, if there was a connection, they would have they would be able to get the resources and the bigger guns that they needed from 
sources outside of the United States, which will be a big internal domestic threat to the United States government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that you know that plus the, the the coalition, you know that you mentioned, you know the the, the white patriots, um, the mm-hmm. young the young lords, you know, Cha Cha Jimenez, and uh, you know the La- Latina brothers, uh, in you know in in Chicago and 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 around the country. I mean, it's you know you, you're talking about you know a real potential threat to power, and particularly being you know, anti-capitalism. Mm-hmm. See, I mean... Jeff Ford, Jeff Ford and the Blackstone Rangers. Jeff Ford and the Blackstone Rangers. Jeff Ford still in prison out at uh, Florence uh, ADX uh, along with... Um, what was the brother named that started the Disciples? Uh, uh, Rick Ross was calling his name out and they say you better stop mentioning our chairman's name. <laughs> they made mm-hmm. Rick Ross shut down some of his... Uh, I think my name is Big Meech. What was I can't remember the brother's name now. Uh, that started the uh, uh, this the gangster disciples. But yeah, uh, you know, and 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 the way Fred went to uh, the brothers when uh, the FBI was writing these letters, doing something that uh, the the brothers out in California, Karanga and Huey, those you know couldn't seem. To do like you know, I'm not sending these letters of antagonism towards you. I mean, come on, man. You know, Fred went and you know sat down with Jeff Ford, and uh, and you know the and and the other uh, leaders of of those organizations. One thing uh, that he said, of course, we knew this was not what not get in the movie, uh, but th- this is one this is one of the things that we're dealing with today. Uh, when when Fred uh, Fred was looking at uh, Richard Nixon's attempt to bring about what Nixon was calling black capitalism. Oh, God. And, 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 and Fred was analyzing that, he, you know, and he was saying, you know, now you got these, these Negroes running around talking about they want to be capitalists. And, you know, this is in 1969 now. And he said, you know, before you know it, you know, we'll have Negro imperialists. And and lo and behold, in 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 2008, what do we see? You know, we'll see we see a black man installed as uh, the titular head of the American Empire, and you know now we see uh, a uh, person of uh, mixed uh, racial ancestry in the number two position. So th- this this has become part of part of the uh, of the game plan. Uh, particularly uh, by the neoliberal uh, faction of the uh, of the imperialist imperialist uh, power elite uh, to use people like Barack Obama, uh, e- even in the United States, installing him as Amos Wilson said, if it if it's necessary for them to give you a black president, they will give you a black president. I mean, they had obviously one of the many char- one of the many characters that Brother Amos used to talk about. Exactly. You know, I mean, yeah. they've seen how effective uh, using people like Mobutu in the Congo and, and, and other, uh, you know, neo-colonial uh, lackeys had been in Africa. So, you know, there you have, man. Uh, here, here this brother was 21 years old now. 21 years old. Highly evolved. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's just, uh, and like I said, that was the greatest fear. That was the greatest fear because all of these guys were young 
when they rose up the challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, Baba Mikasa, Kwame Ray, Jamil Elamine, all these all these guys, you know, Ruby Doris Robinson, these people were very, very young. And they said, Man, if 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 what if this continues, right? Because I mean a person, you know, I'm ten years younger than those guys, but I'm inspired by looking at people that not that are not that much older than me. I'm saying, Wow, look what these brothers are doing. I gotta be part of this. Yes, sir. So that's you know, that's what we have to recapture one way or another, you know, without, you know, committing, you know, some of the same uh mistakes. Yeah, uh I don't know if the movie I have not seen it uh dealt with uh the institutionalization of the idea of the Rainbow Coalition. Uh it wasn't Jesse Jackson, of course, Reverend Jackson was a member of the Blackstone Rangers. Uh early on I thought, I thought doing his brother trip. was. His brother was. Uh, Reverend uh, Jail was too, and there was, was a it? conflict. Y- yes, sir. Um, yeah, um, and and we'll check that. Uh, it was a document called Shakedown, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, Reverend Jackson's role was to basically go to these small businesses and corporations, and uh, under the threat of some type of actually on the tacit threat, demand money, you know, for the organization that he represented. He was a representative during his earlier days, his pre-King, pre-Clay Evans days, before he made this transformation, end of quote, uh, tactics that he would evolve actually and would utilize them when he ran for president. Uh, The uh, persistent question became, you know what does Jesse want? Of course, he would. Uh, he was known to go to these various organizations, Coca-Cola and um, uh, you know whatever corporations were out there um, that he threatened to boycott. Uh, use blackmail tactics and have those corporations funnel money to organizations or firms sympathetic to the Rainbow Coalition which was an organization he would later found in uh, Chicago, up in Cook County. Uh, but you were talking about Nixon as well, you know, in the institutionalization of capitalism to really stave off black power, you know, with affirmative action, quotas, and timetables. Interesting, you mentioned Ali. Joe Frazier was a brother uh, out of Beaufort, South Carolina, who innocently became the darling of white America, was invited to uh, the White House by Nixon as uh, a the personification of someone antithetical to the most famous war protest of our time, you know, Muhammad Ali, a.k.a. Cassius Clay. Uh, you know, just listen to your brother's talk, it just brings back a lot of memories and the um, the interlock between sports, society, and politics, uh, capitalism, the institutionalization of that to stave off black power, which was a point made during the movie, I believe it was called The Butler, you know, where Nixon, not being a fool, said that this is what we need to do to potentially quell the insurgency 
that is brewing among uh, the black community, inside the black community. Yeah, well, you know, it did. It did show the the development. It 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 it, it gave you an idea that you know Fred was developing this coalition, you know, with uh, uh, you know certain uh, certain elements of the white community, uh, white workers or young white people, along with the um, uh, the young lords. So I don't know if they ever used the phrase there, rainbow. Coalition, but this was clearly uh, an anti-capitalist thing, not not something for <laughs> personal aggrandizement or whatever. That that uh, that that Jesse starting with Operation Breadbasket, and then then uh, Operation Push, uh, you know, was doing. Uh, but you know, there 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 are things that uh, that can be we can learn a lot from the movie. You know, despite its uh, its flaws, so you know we just have to keep building on it. Yes, sir. Yeah, this week we also giving an update on the current situation, like we always do with the coronavirus, COVID nineteen, and the direction okay. that people are going in with these vaccines. And there was a report that was released this week where uh, Zimbabwe has flown in 200,000 doses of Sinopharm vaccination for COVID-19 from China. So it looks like they're going forward with getting their healthcare workers and first responders vaccinated first. On the other hand, uh, we do have positive news that continues to come out of Tanzania of their resistance against the COVID vaccine. And one of the explanations that one of the doctors in Tanzania gave for not wanting to participate in the COVID vaccine trial, Dr. Hassan Abbas said that the current the current the, the country is currently focused on using traditional herbal medicines um, because they want to observe um, the clinical trials of this vaccine for it to be proven to be safe and effective. They said it's not. They said it hasn't been enough time and study um, and trials behind this type of mRNA vaccine. And um, at the moment, they've chosen not to participate in uh, taking this vaccination. And they feel that they have a successful treatment and cure. I mean, a, pre- a prevention and a cure for uh, COVID or treatment for COVID-19 through one of their herbal developments, uh, local herbal developments. So I thought that that was positive and that's something that should be echoed around the continent because you have a lot of countries that are starting to participate in bringing in the vaccines, not realizing that you're opening yourselves up for biochemical warfare and and the threat of being uh, exterminated by putting a, a message or instructions inside of your your body that mm. could potentially have deadly effects if they're nefarious purposes, which we feel there are behind the vaccinations. And it's, you know, not, it, it's just highly conceivable 
you know, just the other day I ran across some information that uh, some of the elements that have been found in Gerber baby food include toxic metals. Okay, you got the situation in uh, Flint, Michigan. Uh, so this is, you know, something that is quite common, you know, for nefarious reasons, uh, as well as whatever agenda the producers may have of these major corporations who have the ability to co-opt FDA. You know, person working for FDA, even making $170,000, all of a sudden you hired by Gerber Food, you promised to a job with Gerber Food making a million dollars. You know, when the incentive is there to behave in a nefarious way, just as in the case of um, William O'Neill and the, and, and the message that was uh, uh, disseminated, well, then, he, you know, the, the, there are too many instances of people succumbing to inducements hmm. you know which was pointed out uh, thus uh, it, it's just so hard to produce uh, legitimate revolutionaries rebels in this society in the west in the United States in Babylon because there's just too many inducements dealing with the carrot as well as the stick you know, in in, in in these organizations, you know, based on these tactics are just ridiculously easy, it seems, to just infiltrate. Right. And on another note, there was a document that was released recently um, that is pointing to an increased role by the French in the 1994 genocide that took place in Rwanda and this is a confidential document um, that dates back to 1994 that shows that the former French government let the genociders escape from uh, arrests or house arrests purposefully uh, during this time um, so that they can go out and commit these acts of genocide and so now you know the French government uh, is trying to uh, respond to this, but it'll be interesting to see how far this goes if the Rwandan government chooses to do something with this or, you know, they just sweep this under the rug. But we always knew that there were outside influences, not just the French, but other various factors of outside influence that led up to the confrontation between the Hutu and the Tutsis and which led to that genocide uh, taking place. So that is also coming out. And also this week, there was information released right here in the United States. Governor Andrew Cuomo of New uh -oh. York was found to have hidden numbers about the deaths in nursing homes in, as mm -hmm. relates to COVID-19. One of his lead chairmen released a statement saying that they were afraid to bring out the true numbers during the time of the election in fear of how that information would be used against them. So with so many words, they didn't want to negatively affect Biden during a time when he was running against 
uh, the former President Trump. And during this whole time, his brother, Chris Cuomo, was on CNN after criticizing Donald Trump for being the cause for a lot of people who have died during this during this uh, pandemic. And yet and still, his own brother was purposely hiding people's deaths and in many ways causing more people to get infected and die. So this has been a big blow to the Democrats this week because many people believe that Andrew Cuomo was going to be next in line in regards to a uh, presidential candidate in the next election. And this is a devastating blow to his political career. Many people, even in the Democratic Party, have asked him to step down and resign because of this. Both parties suck. Uh, <laughs> numbers are coming out in the state of Florida where, you know, this Governor Ron DeSantis, okay, presides. Uh, he went as far as to have raided the home of a um, health of administrator to destroy uh, the empirical evidence she had amassed regarding the number of COVID cases in the state of Florida. It's just coming out uh, here over the over the uh, past week and a half. Uh, you know, once again, you know, to reiterate, John Henry Clark, we don't have any friends out here. You know, uh, it, you, now this is this is mine now. You know, and this by no means, you know, should anyone perceive my saying this to be construed that the Democratic Party is a paragon of virtue. But the Republican Party, it is the largest white man's organization in the world. <laughs> you know, that, that's my take. And, uh, you know, uh, with QAnon and all of its auxiliaries, both parties suck. Well, yeah, both parties represent the you know white power structure, which has always been against Africans. That's and right. um, you know, long, that's long, right. long as they long as they stay focused, let at each other's throats, then you know let them let them uh, continue. Right. Um, let me just say this regarding the uh, French. Uh, you know, there there's been an ongoing uh, war of words and accusations uh, between the uh, government of Paul Kagame oh and, my God. and certain forces in France uh, because um, the, uh, the, the 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 forces in France blame Kagame for. Uh, shooting down the airplane of the uh, Hutu presidents of uh, Burundi and Rwanda who were, were returning from a peace conference that had been organized by Mwalimu Julius Nyeri and, uh, in Arusha. And uh, they had actually signed these accords and the plane was mysteriously shot down. Mm. Uh, the Accords was supposed to establish a power-sharing agreement between the Hutu majority and the Tutsi uh, minority. And so France blamed Kagame 
because they said he had the most to gain. Now, we have to understand that Kagame at the time was, you know, waging a, a Bush war or a guerrilla war against the uh, Hutu government. Uh, Kagame's family had initially, uh, when the uh, when the country got the independence and the, the Hutu majority, you know, uh, nominal independence and the Hutu majority uh, took over, Kagame's family fled to Uganda. Uh, and Kagame was identified as a potential stooge, so they 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 shipped him off to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, uh, to be trained by the U.S. military and uh, intelligence and various other organization uh, uh, military tactics. And then when uh, Museveni uh, started his Bush War against the government of Uganda. Kagame left Fort Leavenworth, came back, and joined Museveni in the bush, and uh, became one of his, uh, you know, top commanders uh, in his war to uh, overthrow the government of Uganda. And then, as as payback to uh, Kagame, uh, Museveni allowed Kagame to use Uganda, you know, as a sanctuary to attack Rwanda. But there are other sources who say that there were people within the Hutu, uh, within the Hutu political circles, who didn't want a power-sharing agreement, and they had a vested interest in shooting down the plane of their own Hutu brothers mm. in order to, um, and then and then blame it on the on the on the Tutsi rebels, so that. Uh, you know, they could, you know, engage in this genocide. So the politics is very, very, very murky, and there are no positive characters anywhere uh, that I found. Uh, and the fact of the matter is that the uh, the, the real winner of, of all of the ethno side, not, not only the ethno side in... Um, in, in Rwanda, but as they were able to take advantage of the uh, situation in the Congo, because the Hutus, when they, they fled Rwanda, they went into the Eastern Congo. Mm -hmm. And the, the United States and the NATO powers, France and all of them, basically turned a black pursued uh, the Hutus into the Eastern Congo. And, you know, since 1995, by some estimates, as many as five million people have been killed in the eastern Congo, which actually dwarfs the number of people who were killed in the Rwanda ethnocide. Uh, you know, Susan Rice, then working for Sick Willie, uh, was an undersecretary uh, in the State Department for Africa and a bosom buddy of Paul Kagame. Of course, Kagame and Clinton are bosom buddies also. So there, there, there are no, there are no positive forces here at all. None, none, none whatsoever. I mean, it's the whole thing is, is an absolute mess. Any way you look at it, um, Rwanda to this day has benefited from the minerals from the Congo to become some uh, a leading mineral exporter in 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 a raw and raw materials like gold, for example, and others. 
And when they say, where, where are the gold mines in Rwanda? And the Gami says, well, we got some over here and some over there or whatever. I mean, the whole thing, man, is uh, I, I, I have no confidence in any uh, other than Maga Foley. <laughs> None of the rest of them. I, I don't see anything there uh, uh, at all. You know, in, yeah, in, I always in, thought in, that that it was Kagame who was behind that that uh, assassination of uh, President Juvenal, uh, which which the president of Burundi was also on that plane that they shot down, right, right, and killed exactly. Um, but yeah, that's that that's pretty much what led to the 1994 uh, genocide in Rwanda and. Out of the ashes of all of that, Kagame rose to power as the next president. Exactly, and you know, and and, and he he's slick too. He's really like to me the Barack Obama of Africa because this guy can talk out of both sides of his mouth. You know, he can say all of the positive things. He gets up on these uh, national stages and you know talks smack to uh, you know uh, the, the president of France and the president of uh, whoever. And then all of a sudden the uh, the Zionists call a meeting uh, in mm. uh, in in the uh, in the Emirates in in, in Dubai oh, yeah. or somewhere over there, and then you know he sends representatives over there, uh, you know he's like uh, you know you know making all these overtures to uh, you know Benjamin Netanyahu and stuff. This guy, he, man, he he. He's a slick politician. This guy is really, 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 really slick. And he has a lot of people thinking that, uh, man, he's the nationalist voice of Africa. Right. Man, y'all need to look at this guy's history, man. You right. Understand. Uh, and he's right been... now he's harboring, he's harboring, um, uh, you know, one of the commanders of the, Ma- I think it was the commander of the Mai Mai militia. See, the Eastern Congo is, is probably the most mineral rich place on the planet earth almost everything that's used in electronics today you know the uh, the coal tan and 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 uh, all of the other uh iron uh, ores and and minerals and things come out of the eastern congo and that stuff is uh, a lot of it is uh shipped across the border to rwanda and then exported you know out of rwanda you know to china and you know places like that so Man, and then the, the Africans uh, over there. I, I, I mean, I just saw uh, uh, something the other day where uh, uh, somebody uh, uh, raided a village of uh, of uh, Batwa people and killed 25, just gunned them down in cold blood. I mean, because it, you know, R- Rwanda uh, backs certain militias in the Congo, uh, Uganda backs certain militias in the Congo, and it, it's all a money grab. And and then the masses of people in the Congo are suffering because, you know, the Congo has absolutely no control over over its borders, or and can't provide any safety for its citizens in in that, in that part of the country, uh, you know. And of course, I mean, you know, that area is located close to uh, Katanga, uh, where Moise Sean Bay had you know attempted a secessionist movement, and where Patrice Lumumba was killed. You know, what a mess, man. What can I mm-hmm. say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and you're talking about a group of people in this region who really, prior to the British coming in, saw no saw no difference amongst themselves um, until, you know, the British created these 
race cards or you know these ways to try to identify the the, the Tutsis versus the Hutus and that's where you start to get jealousy and envy and, and you start to get the British to treat one group better than the other and give one group privileges over the other and then you start to get these these conflicts yeah right yeah and you know the the, the Germans actually started it right yeah right yeah, sorry when, the Germans when, yes, when they uh when they drew up the uh the map, you know, Rwanda was a German colony, right? And, if, you know, of course, Germany had to uh, relinquish all of its colonies, you know, after they lost World War One, And then the British simply continued. But the British were already practicing this in other parts of, uh, of Africa. But, um, you know, the Tutsis the, uh, the are not indigenous, you know, to uh, the Rwanda-Burundi area. Um, you know, they more or less migrated from the... Uh, areas close to Somalia and somewhere around, you know, in, that, in those regions, Sudan. And so they, um, uh, but but nevertheless, they were getting along fine, like you said. They were in intermarrying amongst one another, and, you know, they were doing what, what we would want African people to do based on the Narmer model. Mm-hmm. Based on the Narmer model, which is you submerge your ethnic differences to form one people, in order to to build a, a powerful nation, that's what Narmer was able to accomplish. And so, I mean, and 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 when you look at the other success stories, you know, that's what you see. And so, you know, it's not, you know, no, you're African. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's where we are uh, with this guy. But you know, he, like I said, he is really he's smooth, man. The guy, the guy is very very smooth in, 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 in the way he operates. And the thing of it is, the other thing he's been able to do, he has been able to develop his country. And so a lot of look, man, look, look at Rwanda. It's a, it's a model of uh, economic success based on what? Based mm-hmm. on what? Based on, you know, the mineral exploitation of the, of the uh, Kivu provinces of the Congo that's costing African lives every day. So, man, you know, hmm. we definitely need uh, definitely need a revolution against neocolonialism. There's no question about it. Mm-hmm. You know, the last uh, the uh, uh, the APM Research Lab published their uh, report. You know, they do a monthly report where they track uh, COVID-19 fatalities, you know, by race. They're the only group that does this that I have found. And uh, the report they released on uh, February the 2nd uh, indicated that over 63,000 people of African descent have died from, uh, from COVID here in the United States. And... They are uh, the the uh, either the, the Africa CDC or Africa WHO. One of the two said that uh, coronavirus cases are spiking in uh, in Africa as they approach 100,000 deaths. And you, when you put this in the context of a continent with 1.2 billion people, and as I've you know said before, uh, over uh, you know 75% of the deaths 
or better, maybe 80% of the deaths are in four countries, South Africa, Egypt, Morocco, and uh, what is it, Tunisia, one of the, one of the others up there in North Africa. And so in, in terms of people of African descent, more people of African descent have died in the United States, right, uh, or, 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 or perhaps about an equal amount out of the as have died in the entire African continent. You know, when you when you take out the, the deaths on, in Africa of people who were like Arabs, Berbers, and other uh, you know, foreigners, uh, you know, it's it's it, it's quite amazing, you know, thing thing to think about. But, you know, there are people say, well, you know, it's a race based conspiracy, but then you the white deaths are approaching two hundred and fifty thousand. So they want to kill white people too, I guess, right? <laughs> if you want to blame Trump for it, but uh, you know, it's uh, there is a there is a major concern though with these new with these new variants. Um, you know, South Africa suspended their uh, trials of the um, AstraZeneca uh, vaccine because it said it, it was actually doing more harm than good against the new variant, and. Uh, So that's what we're dealing with. Organization is the weapon of the oppressed. Dr. Turet told us this, and we get our ideology as a result of association with the organization. I'll say this has been another edition of this week's episode of the African Liberation Media. Again, visit our website, AfricanLiberationMedia.com. Subscribe to our email list for updates. And check us out on social media and listen to this podcast wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, a BB for Hodie. A BB for Power or the lack of power. I want to repeat this. Power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution is not about gaining real power, not jobs. Because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. You are buying your houses and fine clothes does not represent power either. If it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world.